Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. There's something wrong in the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there. Hello, friends, and welcome to The Secret Podcast with Sixth Sense Media. I'm your host, Dennis Snappy II. This is the show that challenges reality, questions that which we've been taught in hopes of inspiring a new direction of thought to bring about change. It's the show that makes the paranormal normal and the supernatural natural. The show for psychic explorers, consciousness pioneers, and for those of you that know that reality is not what it seems. Got a great show put together for you this evening. Friday, the 29th of September, 2017. As always, lots going on in the world. We'll be looking at predictive policing and the power of artificial intelligence and its ability to predict events of the future. It is now a reality. This software has been in the works for a while, but now it is coming on the forefront. We do need to be concerned about it. There are some, um, I think, some very scary implications about it. I'm going to talk about the positives of it as well and things we can do to prepare for this. But the future is now. And that's why I want to talk about this. I know I, this theme keeps coming up on my show. I just think that this AI is fascinating. It ties into a lot of stuff. So there is new information here. I'm not going to be repeating the same old banter. Obviously, some of the same themes will come through. But I have new information here that I want to share and dive just a little bit deeper into this AI phenomenon. We're watching the birth of AI, possibly the birth of Skynet as we move into this episode of The Seeker Podcast. Some interesting things going on in the news here. Honestly, there's so much that I wanted to pull up, but if I did that, the show would go on for about five hours tonight. There were so many good stories relevant to the themes that we cover on the Seeker Podcast. I am very excited, I must say. For the uh, for the past week, I've been working on the Sixth Sense Media website. Ray Davis and I have been uh, doing a lot of talking about what's going into this and what our plans are for it. I- I've said it every week. He's got the social media corner uh, just nailed down. The numbers are-, are growing for our new followers, our new readers, our new listeners out there. Thank you so much for, for checking us out and, and giving us a shot. Uh, I promise you won't be disappointed with-, with the things that we have to offer and the things that we have in the works. Uh, my phone's blowing up every every you know, throughout the day, let's just say that, with different and exciting content, memes, articles, and discussions that we have. It's uh, facebook.com slash the Sixth Sense Media, and on Twitter it's six underscore sense underscore media, the number six, not the word six. Check us out. You have the show, the links in the show notes at serviceofchange.com as well. But the website's coming up. It's got some great features on it. If I have enough energy when the show's over, I may do a, uh, a Facebook Live Brief introduction to what the website's looking like. It's, like I said, it's a work in progress, but you've got the um, you've got the SoundCloud Cloud app embedded right there on the homepage, so you can listen to any episode of the Secret Podcast when you're there. Got a spot for some of the YouTube videos that we've been putting together. Uh, a great spot for articles and blog posts uh, and some other content that we have that's available to you as a consumer. So much free content that's out there. Obviously, our books are linked to there as well, which helps support the show in this endeavor. And we're looking for content creators. I'm sorry for the long commercial, but this is important. If you are a content creator, if you're a podcaster, if you're a blogger, if you're a researcher, if you're an author, if you're a YouTuber, if you're somebody who makes videos, amateur or not, we may have a home for you on Sixth Sense Media. If you're doing things that are in line with things we talk about on this show or the things we share online, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to see how we can fit because this network is growing 
and uh, I'm excited about what it what what we're going to be offering in the upcoming future. So please get in touch and let us know if you'd like to join our team. All right, let's spin to the news. This first one comes to us from The Guardian, and it's called Zelandia Drilling Reveals Secrets of Sunken Lost Continent. This definitely has my interest. The mostly submerged content of Zelandia may have been much closer to land level than previously thought, providing pathways for animals and plants to cross continents from 80 million years ago. An expedition has revealed Zelandia... Uh, for the most part underwater landmass in South Pacific was declared the Earth's newest continent this year in a paper in the Journal of Geological Society of America. It includes Lord Howe Island, Island off the east coast of Australia, New Caledonia, and New Zealand. On Wednesday's researchers shared findings from their two-month-long expedition, one of the first extensive surveys of the region announcing fossil discoveries and evidence of large-scale tectonic movements. Discovery of microscopic shells of organisms that lived in warm, shallow seas and spores and pollen from land plants reveal the geography and climate of Zelandia was dramatically different in the past, to Professor Gerald Dickens uh, of Rice University. I'll have the show notes to this, obviously, at, at serviceofchange.com, so you can review it for yourself and check the sources and look into this. But Again, this is uh, this tells us there's just our past is just so complicated. And it says nothing about humans or civilizations, but that's a theme that I've been exploring on this show for quite some time. You know, the past there's just there's so much we don't know. There's a lot we know, but there's more that we don't know. And they've got sunken land masses. I mean, what haven't we discovered? What has been lost underneath the ocean. I, you know, I'm one that, that that prescribes to the fact that there was a high society. It's no secret I feel that way. A high society here on Earth, and a lot of it was wiped out. The common threads of the flood myths through throat through so many ancient cultures just makes me wonder what is deep down underneath the ocean. Why have we not sent more expeditions down there? Why are there anomalies coming up on the Google Earth when people are looking in the ocean and finding certain things, and then the next version those things are blurred out. Interesting stuff. I could probably do a whole show on that, and maybe I will one day. All right, moving on. This one, uh, if my screen ever loads, comes from uh, mirror.co.uk. A mystery massive ice block falls uh, from the sky, leaving a huge crater in the family's back garden. This is a really interesting story. Um, You know, this is killing me. I keep getting these surveys that pop up. And then I can't read the articles, so I click skip the survey, and then it takes a while. So bear with me. All right, here we go. Uh, so many sites are so slow. A huge block of ice fell from the sky and smashed into a family's back garden, leaving a large crater and a mystery. The Hueli family says they're fortunate no one was injured or killed in the ice chunk landed with a big boom and shook the house. The impact left the crater 1.4 meters by 1.2 meters. That's four feet seven inches by three feet seven inches in the middle of their lawn with bits of ice scattered across the grass. There's been no obvious explanation, but the thought, but it is the thought that ice may have fallen from an aircraft passing thousands of feet overhead. And there's some pictures of the ice here. Again, I'll have this in the links to the show notes at serviceofchange.com. It'll be in the secret newsletter as well. Lindsay Helliwell, 41, who lives with husband Ross, 51, and daughters Elise, 9, and Nuala 13 said she was relieved no one was in their garden in Busby, uh, Renfrewshire, when the ice block crashed into the ground on Tuesday morning. She said it's slightly concerning that it was so close to the house, and Harper, our dog, is constantly out in the garden because it's secluded. 
If it had been Saturday or Sunday, the kids could have been out playing football. My other daughter could have been playing with Harper. And again, it's just this giant big block of ice. Uh, ultimately, again, I'll have the link so you can look at this. I'm not going to read the whole article and steal their thunder. But I don't think they've found a plane or an aircraft that was flying over during that time. Now, maybe uh, are there things in the sky that are unreported that you know are unknown? Maybe there was some kind of secret program flying over there. I'm, I'm just projecting out there now. I don't know. But I spoke. I'm going off the deep end here for a minute just because it's fun to do. And I have no evidence to back this up right now. But I think it's important putting the Sixth Sense spin on it, putting the secret podcast spin on it, to sometimes... Look at the abstract and think outside the box. Yes, is there a chance that it was from an airplane? Yes, that's the most likely and the obvious solution, but they're, again, not finding evidence of that right now. I I read or I listened to a while ago. I know there's some research out there on the internet. I think I did a show on this, and it tied into the, if you look at some of the older creation stories and the planet Tiamat, this was a Robert Morning's guy, um, you know, his terror papers and what he talks about. Um, how Tiamat was another planet in our solar system that was destroyed. Some say part of Tiamat became the Earth. Some say Tiamat dumped it. It was a water planet, and the water came in and flooded the Earth. I think the way Robert Morning Sky tells it, and I think even Michael Tessarian talks a little bit about this. Anyway, there was a planet that was up there that had water on it, and it got destroyed. Some say part of that's the asteroid belt, but some also say that some of that water just froze into, like it was an instant freeze once it hit space, and there were chunks of water, chunks of ice floating around space. Now, what's interesting, I know there's stuff out on the internet about it. Every so often, a block of ice will fall from the sky, and in it will be fish. And the fish will, some are saying the fish are still alive. Now, we're talking probably thousands and thousands of years ago. So I I have no confirmation on this, but it's just one of those interesting things. When I see this story, that's where my brain goes. And I I go, I know it's not the most logical explanation, but again, I am looking for that unusual piece. That's how my brain is trained right now to find the paranormal within the normal. And so that's my first go-to and I don't see anything wrong with that. I'm not saying that's exactly what it is. I'm just saying I'm open to that possibility. And that's something I'd like to at least try to rule out as well in my exploration for things. If you have more on that, please let me know. I'll try to get it up on the uh, social media feeds and on the website and maybe feature it in an upcoming podcast. All right. I want to talk about predictive policing. I have a whole bunch of other articles, but they're related to this stuff. AI, um, predictive policing. I mean, it it baffles me where where we're going because it's happening so fast right now. You know, you think, oh, 10, 20, 30, maybe 50 years in my lifetime, we'll we'll start seeing these things. I mean, it was a big deal, uh, you know, when, when the iPhones came out and you were able to video chat. You know, when you started having, I remember webcams back in the day, Um, you know, just AOL Instant Messenger was a big deal. You're able to communicate with people through the computers that way. That was a lot of fun. And it slowly just evolved. The next thing you know, I said, oh my gosh, the Jetsons were right. We have watches now and we have phones that you can hold in your hand and I can see a video and talk to somebody on the complete opposite end of the planet and it's crystal clear. That was a fascinating technology, but now they're taking it to the next step. And this involves things like facial recognition and taking that even to the next level, which I'm going to get into tonight, um, how they can use that facial recognition to identify things like your sexual orientation and your political and religious preferences as well. That's where it gets a little bit scary. So I'm going to talk about that. I want to look at some of this technology. I'm looking at an article right now. It's just the abstract to an article. I'll have the link to it if you want to look at it even further, Um, but it's from the and oh, where are we at here? It's the uh, National Criminal Justice Reference System. It's uh, ncjrs.gov. 
And this one article, the NCJ number is 229737. Predictive policing, what we can learn from Walmart and Amazon about fighting crime in a recession. The Journalism Police Chief, Volume 76, issue, 11, issue number 11, dated November 2009, pages 18 to 20, 22, 23, and 24. And the author is Charlie Beck and Colleen McHugh. I'm just going to read the abstract. It says, new tools now being designed to increase the effective use of police resources have the ability to make every agency more efficient, regardless of the availability of resources. The innovative predictive policing model moves law enforcement from focusing on what happened to focusing on what will happen and how to effectively deploy resources in front of crime, thereby changing outcomes. With new technology, new business processes, and new algorithms, Predictive policing is based on directed information-based patrol, rapid response supported by fact-based pre-positioning of assets, and proactive intelligence-based tactics, strategy, and policy. The analytic methods used in the predictive policing model surface particular times and locations predicted to be associated with an increased likelihood of crime. Okay, wow, what the heck was that talking about there? Basically, they're using technology and they're, they're compiling a ton of data from the history of crime in a given area, and the software identifies patterns and says, okay, every five years, a car theft happens on this street. And, it, and it's narrowing it down. So what they're doing is saying, okay, there's a 75% chance that somebody's going to steal a car today in this neighborhood. So they're going to deploy a police officer to that area and try to prevent the crime. Uh, I found a little bit more. here. This is from predpol.com, P-R-E-D-P-O-L.com slash technology. Give me a minute while I wait for this to load. Here it goes. Um, all right, excuse me, I'm just scrolling up here talking about this technology. It says, PredPol's technology helps law enforcement agencies prevent crime. PredPol's technology has been helping law enforcement agencies to dramatically reduce crime in jurisdictions of all types and sizes across the U.S. and overseas. The Crime Prediction Algorithm the algorithm used by PredPol has been published and discussed publicly in peer-reviewed papers. It is based on the observation that certain crime types tend to cluster in time and space. PredPol uses self-exciting point process models to replicate this behavior. I have no idea what that is. There's a link. You can check it out if you'd like to. It'll be in the show notes. PredPol takes a feed from each department's records management system to collect crime types, location, and date time. The data is collected at least daily and feeds our, predicted, our prediction engine, which is run once a day to create predictions for each beat, shift, and mission type. The data collected does not include any personality identifiable information. Uh, we intentionally process several years of data to lay down a, quote, background level of crime patterns and to understand how crimes propagate throughout the city. This is done using epidemic-type aftershock sequence, I have no idea what that is, model, which is a self-learning algorithm. Oh, there you go. It's a self-learning algorithm. Uh, as new crimes come in, they are mapped against existing patterns and the events in the city based on the propagation patterns uncovered by the initial analysis of the data. We predict when and where similar crimes related to these crimes are most likely to occur. Does this sound familiar to anybody? I mean, this is this is technology here, but this sounds like minority report almost. At what point are they going to start arresting people? Well, you say, no, right now they're just looking at patterns and they're looking at algorithms. But what I'm going to get to in a little bit might start to change that. Uh, let's see, what's the next article I have? I put everything in order, but I can't remember what the order is that I put them. Uh, so here we go. This is this is an older article. This is from UCLA, uh, and this is talking about the benefits of it. The predictive policing substantially reduces crime in Los Angeles during a months-long test. 
I'm not going to go through all the nitty-gritty of this. This article comes to us, uh, where is that? It's from UCLA Newsroom, and this is from October 7th, 2015. So it's a little bit older, but it's, it's everything I just talked about. And what they found is that uh, the model was so successful that the LAPD has adopted it for use in 14 of its 21 divisions. And again, that was this is back in 2015. I'm not sure where they're at today. Not only did the model predict twice as much crime as trained crime and analysts predicted, but it also prevented twice as much crime, said Jeffrey Brathingham, a UCLA professor of anthropology and senior author of the study. So this stuff is getting results. And I'm not, look, as a former cop, I'm not saying this is bad. If we can use an algorithm we can pre- and predict crime, that sounds like a good thing, right? Win, win, win. I think there are some, some dangerous implications. I don't think they're at that point right now. But as a police officer, you want to be proactive. You try to be proactive. I worked as an analyst when I was in the military for a little bit, and you're trying to predict when the bad stuff is going to happen. And you do that based on looking at personalities, look at the intel that you have, and everything else that you know that's going on in the area, and you try to predict what's going to happen. That's the job of a good an- analyst. You're taking data and you're predicting it. So now they have computers that are probably going to put these analysts out of the job, which I don't think is ever ever a good idea to take humans out of the loop. But they're able to do it, obviously, a lot more efficiently because they're able to process data, uh, much more larger quantities of data in a much more efficient manner. So this works. As we can see, this is working. But where is it going? That That is my concern because I'm thinking of the movie Minority Report. And I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this before. If you haven't seen Minority Report, go watch it. It's a great movie. It's got Tom Cruise in it. But the premise of Minority Report, and this is going to tie into something that's close to my heart as well, but Minority Report uses natural psychics. And what these psychics do, they're called precogs. The three of them predict future crime. And then the police, they call them the precog unit, they go out and they arrest people for a crime they have not yet committed. They analyze the data, they look at it. It's just like analyzing, not just like, but it reminds me of when people analyze remote viewing data. But they go out and they make the arrest and they'll put the person in jail for a crime they have not committed. So then it goes in and the movie kind of explores the ethics of something like that. So with that in mind, right now we're using a computer-based system, and we're looking to incorporate, it looks like, AI into this. And it worries me, because as, as Tom Cruise is walking you know, through the mall and stuff, every little sensor, there's sensors everywhere, uh, is hitting him in the face, and the ads are immediately geared towards him. And it's these holograms that come up, and they're addressing him by name, and they're saying, hey, it's been six months since you've been in this store. Remember you bought this last? And they bring up his whole purchase history. Everything about him, just from walking through the mall, he gets hit with like five million ads. Well, that's what happens every time you go on Facebook right now. It's like, wow, I was just looking at something on a random website. All of a sudden, I'm getting ads for it on Facebook because they're tracking your behavior. That's the danger of metadata. As an intelligence collector, that's what you want because you want to gather every piece of information about a person so you can predict what they're going to do because you never know when you're going to need a random piece of information to use it against them. So what people in marketing do is very similar, I think, to what people in intelligence try to do as well. Why am I going on this long tangent here? Because that's what's being collected. And you got to ask yourself, is this becoming a violation of our privacy? Is this becoming a violation of our own sovereignty? 
Uh, I'm going to skip around in the order that I set up now just because it seems a little bit more important. This comes to us from theguardian.com slash technology. Artificial intelligence uh, and, and facial recognition. Give me a second while this loads. But this is going to talk about the, the software that they now have that's able to determine uh, you, you know, your, uh, your political affiliations, your sexual orientation. Here we go here. I wish this wasn't so slow sometimes. I really do. Bear with me, my friends. Face-reading AI will be able to detect your politics and IQ, Professor says. Uh, and this professor who studies suggested technology can detect whether a person is gay or straight. Says programs will still soon reveal traits such as criminal predisposition. Okay, that's just the caption on that. That's a scary thing because I think, again, we're moving toward that minority report-esque type of society. Voters have a right to keep their political beliefs private, but according to some researchers, it won't be long before a computer program can accurately guess whether people are liberal or conservative in an instant. All that will be needed are photos of their faces. Michael Kaczynski, Kaczynski the Stanford University professor who went viral last week for research suggesting that artificial intelligence can detect whether people are gay or straight based on photos, said sexual orientation was just one of many characteristics that algorithms would be able to predict through facial recognition. Using photos, AI will be able to identify people's political views, whether they have high IQs, whether they are predisposed to criminal behavior, whether they have specific personality traits, and many other private personal details that could carry huge social consequences, he said. I'm going to go on a, on a tangent here on a caveat. In my introduction to criminal justice class, we're going back to 1998 when I was a student in, in my undergrad schooling, one of the things they talked about was the history of crime, the history of criminal justice. And there was a guy, I want to say his name was Cesar Beccaria. I think he was an Italian guy. And he, I'm going to butcher this, but from what I remember, I think he believed that based on certain measurements of people's faces, you could determine if they were going to be a criminal. It, it was a way to profile. It had nothing to do with race as we use profiling today, but it was a way of taking certain measurements and looking at a certain person and seeing, okay, they're more likely than not to become a criminal. Now, this was completely debunked as far as I understand. I mean, we, the way it, it was taught to me was like, hey, this is a load of garbage. It doesn't work that way. You can't tell by the way someone's face is, is that they're going to be a criminal. Now, with this technology saying, it sounds like they're going backwards. But at the same time, I have to wonder, because I was, I was talking to somebody today uh, in a mental health capacity, but they were being very defensive. They, they, you know, I, hey, are you, I said, hey, how are you today? And they said, I'm good. And their body language just screamed to me, I'm having a problem. And we ended up having a conversation about neurolinguistics. Neurolinguistics basically, you know, it's something like 97% of communication is nonverbal, meaning it's not just the words that you say, it's your body language, it's your facial expression, it's the tone of your voice, the pitch of your voice, the way that you're breathing, the way that you're standing, all this different stuff um, goes in to communicate something. So I, I pay attention to what people say, but I go off of uh, I, I go off of all that other stuff to include what my intuition is giving me. But that's a discussion for a different show. But I, I'm wondering: is this technology 
picking up on those subtleties? Do we have those tells or those gives just based on a standard picture of our face? That I don't know. Maybe if we asked a question and then we had facial recognition reading it, we'd be able to analyze that with this facial recognition software to determine this person is gay, this person is straight, this person's Republican, this person's Democrat. I don't know, but that's how they're pushing this stuff. That's where it's going. That's what scares me now because now this technology could easily be abused and used to categorize and classify people and put them in groups. And God forbid we start arresting people for crimes they haven't committed yet or we start taking away people's freedoms because they are more potential to commit a crime. By taking away people's freedoms, I mean maybe putting covert surveillance on somebody, tapping their phones, paying attention to their movements, tracking their locations, uh, you know, just keeping a watch on them. That's highly possible. That That is not beyond the realm of possibility. I'm going to go on a guess here and say within the next five to ten years if this stuff comes out. This is something we need to be mindful of. Chances are every one of our faces right now, especially if you're listening to this show, our faces are out there in social media or they're captured on some surveillance camera somewhere, your driver's license picture. They know who you are. And if that starts getting used, I mean, that could cause a lot of problems. And I read another article and it talked about, well, think about the implications in countries where it's against the law to be homosexual or or, or gay um, or or bisexual or trans, whatever it is. If they have technology that they employ to look at that, well, you might get people that are are wrongly accused. I I mean, how can you prove how accurate this is? At least right now, I don't don't think that it is. It, It just scares me. So, Again, this is something we need to be mindful of. I think at certain instances, it could be a very useful tool. But at the same time, I think that this this could be Pandora's box, especially with the advancements in AI. Now, I saw a video. Uh, I will have the links in the show notes. But it was of an AI in, in I think they said Tokyo. I, I thought it was a human being. This, this, it was a robot. I don't know if it was AI yet, but it was a robot. This robot looked incredibly lifelike. It was scary. Uh, and it, I mean, it's coming. The, these robots are, are, are coming out. Now, if they start putting this AI into them, what if they start saying, just like in uh, the movie iRobot with Will Smith, humans in danger, right? And they, ultimately, they ended up corralling all the humans because they felt humans were a threat to themselves and they were. They, it just it, it restricted everybody's freedoms. Maybe I'm going off the deep end here. I'm seeing what I call INW, indicators and warnings. And I think we're still at an early enough stage where we can take appropriate countermeasures. And I said it in the last four shows, make sure you can unplug. But as far as this facial recognition stuff that's going to be categorizing you, I think we need to protest this. And, and by protest, I don't mean take into the streets, but we need to boycott it and do whatever we can to uh, to be careful and guard ourselves against this. All right, I spent a lot more time on that than I wanted to because there's other stuff I want to get into so speaking of AI and drones and all that stuff, this comes from the dailycaller.com. This one is titled, The FBI Director is, uh, is Claiming That Terrorist Drones Are Coming Here Imminently. And there's a video that I will have linked up in the show notes. I'm going to read from their, uh, their excerpt here. Uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray warned Congress on Wednesday that terrorist groups are looking to use drones to wage attacks in the U.S. I think we do know that terrorist organizations have an interest in using drones, Wray testified in a hearing for the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. 
We've seen that overseas already with growing frequency. I think the expectation is that it's coming here imminently. I think they are relatively easy to acquire, relatively easy to operate, and quite difficult to stop. Nicholas Robinson, the director of the National Counter Counterintelligence Center, echoed Ray's concerns. Two years ago, this was not a problem. A year ago, it was an emerging problem. Now it's a real problem. So we're quickly trying to up our game, Ramison testified during the hearing. He said the counterterrorism agencies have ramped up efforts to bring together intelligence professionals to help understand the tactics and techniques that drone-using terrorist groups might employ. That could be dropping small explosives the size of a grenade. Well, that's scary. It could be dispersals of toxins, potentially. You know, I'm just going to go off on a tangent here because this website's moving slowly. I think they're all moving slowly today. Maybe it's my computer. This could be any number of things. I mean, you know, and again, I'm not saying this to panic. What I'm saying is, if you're out in a crowded place and you see a drone, you may want to move out of the way. I don't know what the answer is right now for um, countering these things. I, I know that it's this is happening now and drone technology again it's going to be the consumer that's going to continue to drive and advance these uh, amazon i did a show on amazon looking to increase its drones to go and deliver packages same day deliveries is what, is what amazon's piloting piloting right now no pun intended and i saw i know dubai has its own drone taxi now that's out there uh, this unmanned taxi service that flies through the air so drones are coming and again what happens when we take humans out of the mix, when they're not actually piloting it, when it's an AI program? That's not too far-fetched. I mean, you have the technology of Tesla, who's uh, driving on its own. We'll talk about some Tesla stuff in a minute. Um, but, you know, these things have the ability to, to learn and to operate independently. What happens when it's an AI that's running this stuff and they have the potential for this? They have the potential to, with this facial recognition, I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is the real deal. This is the real deal. From uh, NewYorkCBSLocal.com, there have been mysterious metal towers popping up all over New York City, and nobody knows what they're for. Uh, I believe they're tied into the Department of Homeland Security, but the government, the MTA, that's the Metropolitan Transportation Agency, is refusing to comment on what these towers are. We know they're Homeland Security related. We don't know if there's facial recognition sensors on there. We don't know what they are. But there's these mysterious towers that are popping up that has everybody quite puzzled. This is the last article I'm going to get into here. This is from DefenseOne.com. It's uh, the future U.S. military is constructing a giant armed nervous system. Now, this reminds me of, uh, I guess a few months ago, I did a show and I talked about their swarm technology, their, their swarm bots, I forget what they were called, locust-sized little robots that they can deploy in large numbers that have a, uh, what's the term, I want to say a flock mentality. Not anyone is controlled. They all adapt and move as a group, it's like one hive mentality. That's what I'm looking for. It's like one big brain. They can adapt to a situation. They can heal themselves. They can overwhelm an enemy. They can hit the enemy with poison. They can hit the enemy with whatever. That stuff's out there. I, I, like I said, I didn't ever show on this. Uh, so let me read this article. Service chiefs are converging on a single strategy for military dominance. Connect everything to everything. Have you seen Terminator 3? Skynet. He even says, "I still like to keep humans in the loop of our, you know, in charge of our nuclear weapons." Leaders of the Air Force, Navy, Army, Marines are converging on a vision of future military, connecting every asset on the global battlefield. 
That means everything from F-35 jets overhead to destroyers on the sea to the armor of tanks crawling over the land to the multiplying devices in every troop's pockets. Every weapon, vehicle, and device connected, sharing data, constantly aware of the presence and state of every other node in a truly global network. The effect, an unimaginably large, I can't even say this word, cepha, let me try it again, cephalodial nervous system, armed with the world's most sophisticated weaponry. In recent months, the Joint Chiefs of Staff put together the newest version of their national military strategy. Like previous ones, it is classified but executing a strategy requiring buy-in and collaboration across the services. In recent months, at least two of the service chiefs talked openly about the strikingly similar direction that they are taking their forces. Standing before a sea of dark blue uniforms at a September Air Force Association event in Maryland, Air Force Chief of Staff General David Goldfein said he had refined his plans for the Air Force after discussions with the Joint Chiefs as part of the creation of the classified military strategy. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. The future of the Air Force, the service needed to be more like a certain electric car manufacturer. Every Tesla car is connected to every other Tesla car, said the Goldfein, referring to the presentation by Elon Musk, who I cover quite extensively, about the way his firm's vehicles learn from their collective experience. If a Tesla is headed down the road and hits a pothole, every Tesla that's behind it that's self-driving, it will avoid the pothole immediately. If you're driving the car, it automatically adjusts your shocks in case you hit it too. Again, it's the consumer that's going to drive this technology because there's a benefit to it. That's a wonderful thing, right? You can avoid this, and it's instantly learning. Now, when you're thinking of stuff on the battlefield... Uh, right now, the way it works is that you know you have your satellite data coming in. You have all your other different types of ints. There's several different types of intelligence, and it's all coming into a uh, TOC, which is Tactical Operations Center. It's coming into an ACE, an analytical con- control element. Uh, I don't know what's changed since I've got out of the game, but that information is being funneled to a particular area. Then your analysts are reviewing it. They're networking. They're talking to one another, and they're putting it together in a package and saying, "Hey, sir." Here's our snapshot of the battlefield based on our interpretation of the data that's coming in. It's it's somewhat real-time, but it depends on the speed of the information coming in. Now, if you have everything wired in some kind of computer neural network and it's processing immediately on the battlefield, and my veterans out there are going to know exactly what I'm talking about, think of how fast you can get that information and how fast it can give you a snapshot. That's a fast-moving battlefield. That's great for people that are trying to win wars, but that depends on what the war is and who the enemy is. And again, if AI is involved and everything's wired to it, I know it sounds crazy, but what if for some reason there's a malfunction? What if that technology suddenly becomes hacked and we become the enemy or we become the target? That has some very scary, dangerous implications. I think, you know, I'm starting to understand why Elon Musk warns that the advancements in AI are more dangerous than the nuclear threat right now that we're dealing with with North Korea. I know uh, Putin had recently, I read an article, I, I wanted to read it today, I can't find it right now, but, but Putin you know, was talking about whoever controls AI will control the world. So by default of him now saying that, everybody now understands that there is a race to get in control of AI because you're going to have the most dominant military on the planet. This is becoming weaponized whether we like it or not. And, and I think it has some very scary implications. Again, I hate putting stuff out there that's doom and gloom. I'm not trying to spread fear. I always feel like I have to give that caveat. But we need to be aware of this. Now, I want to shift in a different direction and, again, give it my 
my uh, Truth Seeker spin, my Sixth Sense Media spin, and, and talk about well, what are some things that we can be doing instead of this? Look, AI is here. AI is happening right now. This technology is happening. I think the good old boycott is, is a great thing to do. Refuse any implants. Refuse anything that um, you know is going to connect you to technology in a way that you cannot disconnect from. But in addition, we need to minimize our dependence on that technology for a thousand reasons. But thinking strictly as a countermeasure here, Taking it back to what I want to call the roots of my show, the roots of my movement, as I'm always looking at the psychic connection to the universe, and there's fantastic research that I've covered in so many other shows, and what I believe is happening with AI, with this interconnectedness, I think that the ability to know stuff through the internet instantly and to connect AI and stuff of that nature... I think that's replicating an ability we already have. I listened to an old interview from the 90s with Ingo Swan and Art Bell. and He was talking about the, the beginning of the remote viewing plan and how so many people, everybody can learn remote viewing. You can tap into this universal data stream and know stuff. It sounds a lot like the way AI is being programmed to work because it's connecting everything. Well, everything's already connected. But the more we train ourselves to rely on and focus on technology, the less we're going to be able to tune into and listen to our own intuitive processes. Now, I've been pushing this probably for the last couple of months, but I, I think that, again, there's a whole bunch of training programs out there for remote viewing. We need to work on, if you want your homework, and I think this will benefit us in so many ways. If a worst-case scenario happens, Skynet takes over, an EMP goes off, whatever your worst-case scenario is, and I'm not promoting that. But let's. I, but I, as I'm somebody who always likes to prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. If something like that happens, I think you should work on developing that skill set. Develop. Take a training course, read a book in remote viewing and in the potential that opens up and and see what you can learn from it and start building a network. That is not the only piece, that should not be your only source of information or intelligence, but that can be a crucial piece. You can look at a situation once you design your protocols and, and, and work with you know your team there because you shouldn't really be doing this yourself, you should be doing this blind, but you can design a way to gather intelligence on things that will happen in the future. And remote viewers have been doing this for decades now, okay? And, and I suspect much longer throughout history. But modern day, they've been doing this for decades, probably since the 80s and 90s. F develop your methods like the Farsight Institute's doing. They're predicting the news. If you can spe specifically target, hey, here's what's going on either in my life or within my community – and then compare it with all the other data that you have access to. You may not work for the government. You may not work for the community. You may not have a ton of resources. But as of right now, you're capable of reading the news and seeing what's going on. You're capable of talking to people in the community. We may be at this point where you have to start gathering your information to find out what's going to happen next. You're not going to have access to this AI tech. This AI tech may be used against you. If you can tap into this data stream, which I believe that we all can, and you can refine your way to do it, it's going to take work. This might be a countermeasure to the AI's predictive technology. 
I don't know. I, I think that's what I'm trying to say. I hope it. I hope it's making sense. But I, I know there's something there. I know there's something to that. And I don't want us to lose that connection because we come become so dependent on tech. But I'm curious. I, I'd like to see what happens in a hundred years. I suspect technology again is going to become so similar to biology that in a hundred years, hundred fifty years whoever's the dominant species on the planet may not even realize that what they're dealing with is actually tech. And I've covered this on several uh, podcasts in the past. I'm not going to go through it again. Go listen to those. But it always reminds me of a book called uh, called Ventus. And I'm trying to see if I have it on my bookshelf right now. I can't recall who the author is. But that's basically the premise of it, is that there was an ancient high society. They, can create it. they created this advanced technology called Mecca, and uh, that Mecca eventually became a part of nature in the future and interacted with uh, with their world. People didn't even really understand it. It's here. It's coming. It's getting more extreme. Again, uh, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm reading the facts here as I'm getting them coming across. This is real. We need to be aware of it. And I think we need to remember what our other connections are to the universe and not in a new age way but in a very real in a very practical way we have the ability to know stuff we have the ability to develop our own intelligence gathering methods to benefit our own lives and help chart the course of our uh, our day to day i'd love to see more of this uh moving on and let's not forget the power of uh, of meditation and of mindfulness through that offers healing and it can also reduce instances of crime start forming your own meditation groups listen to my shows where i talked about the uh, the maharishi effect i've done several shows on that just 1% in a given area is needed to reduce uh instances of crime and violence i think we need to start getting in the right mindset and focusing on peace not just hoping for peace but feeling peace visualize what peace actually feels like. Spend some time every day doing that and uh, and working towards that because that, I think, can help counteract the fearful stuff. All the scary stuff I just put out, I probably just contributed the wrong way that I want to go. But it's important to be mindful of this stuff, but we don't need to panic. There are many things that we can do still to prepare for this and to prevent it from getting absolutely terrible and from things like Skynet from being born. Let's hope not. All right, my friends, as always, thank you for once again joining me this week. It means the world to me. I've been getting uh, some messages from many of you out there. It means the absolute world to me to hear that you're listening and you're continuing to listen and you appreciate it. You know, and I've heard a common theme over the past week from people who've connected with me. And it's basically like it's saying that the things that I cover on this show represent thoughts that many of you have had your entire life but you can't really talk about it in a social situation. And that's that's my goal, is to have this weird stuff, this psychic stuff, this, this uh, ancient history stuff become a common conversation, to make it comfortable to talk with people about it because the more comfortable it gets, the more people will be able to accept the idea, the more we'll be able to then openly explore these ideas. Maybe that's the idea behind the Ancient Aliens TV broadcast. I tend to think there's some other stuff going on with that, but you get my you get my gist. We need to be able to have these conversations without people looking at us going, dude, you're absolutely insane. We're not insane. I think we're aware that there's something more going on in this world. There's more to life. There's more to our existence, and we want to know what that is. So on that note, my friends, I'm going to go ahead and close out the show. 
And remember that small changes among the masses can have a massive impact around the world. I encourage you to be that change. Never stop questioning. And keep an open mind. Thank you. Oh, <laughs>